Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. I invite you to take with me your copy of God's Word as we continue this morning in the Gospel of John. If you would turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we'll read from verse 41 through verse 40, uh, 46. But I want to focus this morning on verse 45. John chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 41. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41, let us hear together the word of God. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Let's unite our hearts and ask that God would come and minister to us through his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can sing this morning that it is well with my soul. We thank you that we can sing... Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. That you have revealed Christ to our hearts. Father, thank you for your grace, which is beyond our words to describe. Your grace, which pursues sinners as they run their hellbound race. Grace, which overtakes them and changes their hearts, and changes their wills, and brings us safely to Christ, who holds us and will hold us until that great last day when He will raise us up with Himself. Father, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You that You have chosen to glorify Yourself by the magnificent display of Your grace to your objects of mercy, to the people of your own choosing, for your glory, not because of anything in us, not because of wisdom or power, but so that you might shame the strong, that you might shame the wise. Father, we thank you that we are privileged and blessed among all people to be part of your church who not only possess Your Word, but we possess Your Word in our hearts because You have taught us, as Jesus says here, that all of Your people have been taught of God in the inward man to love Christ, to trust Christ, to delight in Christ, to value Christ even above, above life itself. Father, we pray that You would continue to minister to us by Your grace. Continue to grow us in assurance. We pray that we would be able to, with Paul, say that we know that nothing, neither death nor life, nor things in heaven nor on earth, not principalities or powers, not sword, not famine, not nakedness, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not even death itself. We pray, Father, grow us more, grow us deeper in our confidence in who Christ is for us. That He cannot fail. 
Father, we pray this morning for any who are here who don't know Christ. We, we pray that You would have pity upon them. That You would minister to their hearts, not only by Your Word externally, but by Your Spirit in, internally. Father, bring them from darkness to light. Bring them from futility to purpose. We pray that they would realize the emptiness of the broken cisterns that are this world and that they would return to You the fountain of living water that they may may find rest for their souls that they may find life. Father, draw near to us now as we come to the preaching of Your Word. Give us attentive hearts, attentive minds. Father, we pray by Your Spirit would warm our hearts, warm our affections, and apply Your Word to us so that our wills would be renewed and empowered to desire to do Your will as Christ came to do Your will perfectly. Send Your Holy Spirit, we pray. Draw near to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're picking back up Right in the middle of Jesus' address to this Jewish crowd in John chapter 6, it's been a couple of weeks, but if you remember, what we have seen again and again in this chapter is Jesus being the recipient of the stubborn unbelief of the Jews. Just the very next day after the feeding of the 5,000 in verse 30, they are demanding from Him a sign so that He would so-called prove his credentials and command their, their belief. In verse 31, they are insinuating that Moses has done greater things than Christ. Verse 41, we saw last time that they grumbled against his claims to be from heaven. And they even justify their unbelief by convincing themselves that they know, or at least they think they know, the human origin of Jesus, and they think they know His parents. And this will not be the last that we see of their grumbling. We will see a couple more times before the end of the chapter them continue to dispute amongst themselves and to grumble and to complain, which will ultimately culminate in verse 66 at the very end of the chapter with the vast majority of this crowd completely walking away from Jesus and walking with Him no more. This chapter, chapter 6, is it ought to strike the reader as significantly opposed to and different from what we have just recently seen in John chapter 4 with Jesus' visit to the Samaritans. Where you remember, it seems the entire village of Sychar which was filled with what the Jews would have regarded as the dogs and the swine of society, the entire village of Sychar flocked to the Savior. And John 6 is a stark illustration of what John made known to us at the very beginning of his Gospel in chapter 1, verse 11, when he said, He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. But if you remember, John in chapter 1 didn't end on that note of seeming failure, and neither does Jesus end on that note here in John 6. John said to us in the very next verse, verse 12 of chapter 1, but as many as did receive Him, yes, there are many who have rejected Him, but to as many as did receive Him and believed on His name, He gave to them the right to be called children of God who were not born of the flesh nor of the will of man, but who were born of God. In other words, John was telling us from the very beginning that the unbelief we are going to see in this book is not a stick in the spokes of Jesus' mission. It did not catch God by surprise precisely what Jesus has been telling these crowds. That though you reject My Word, and though you remain far off from coming to Me, yet My Father has given to Me from eternity a people, 
and all of them will most certainly come to me. We saw that in verse 37, verse 44 last time. And Jesus goes further. He says, they will certainly come to me because all whom my Father gives to me, He will draw to me. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. It's what I mentioned last time. But the next time, Lord willing, we were in this Gospel, I want to focus on what this drawing means. And then open up doctrine from it and application. So let's turn to our exposition here, focusing on verse 45 this morning. He has just said in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay? That's the negative. And that's what we considered last time. Human inability. That apart from this drawing or could be translated this compelling of the Father, sinners will not and cannot come to Christ. Jesus is not afraid to make unbelievers aware of feeling their own utter dependence upon the grace of God to be saved. And then he says in verse 44, the positive, that all those whom the Father does draw to the Son, he says, I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, there are none that the Father draws to the Son that do not make it safely to Christ and who do not make it safely to glory. And as we noted last time, that statement by itself puts an end to any suggestion that this drawing of the Father is something that happens to everyone. But now, what we want to spend some moments considering, Jesus appeals to the Old Testament Scriptures for His doctrine. He's not just pulling this out of thin air, but He is drawing from the Scriptures. Just as they earlier cited Moses to Him, He now cites Isaiah to them. And He cites Isaiah 54, verse 13, where Isaiah says in one of the great prophetic chapters of the New Covenant, talking about the coming of the New Covenant, Isaiah says, and all your children shall be taught by the Lord. Now, Isaiah 54 comes obviously right on the heels of what chapter? Isaiah 53, right? That's not a trick question. Isaiah 53, in which we have that um, probably one of the high points of the Old Testament, that great passage about the suffering servant. The Messiah, the, the man of sorrows whom it pleased the Lord to crush for the iniquities of His people. But if you read chapter 53 of Isaiah, it doesn't end on the note of somber failure, but rather it ends on the note of victory. That this one who went as a sheep is silent before uh, its shearers, and it went away to the slaughter, this same one who was slaughtered rises again to see, as Isaiah says, the labor of his soul to be satisfied. And specifically in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, Isaiah says, when you, speaking of the Father, When you make His soul an offering for sin, He shall see His seed and be satisfied and prolong His days. Messiah, after dying, shall see His offspring. It's a certainty. And it's a certainty because as Isaiah 54.13 says, all your children shall be taught of God. Now, the question for us is what what does it mean to be taught by the Father? What does it mean? This has been interpreted various ways. I want to give you three things. The first two, I want to give you two things that it cannot mean when Jesus quotes Isaiah and says that they all shall be taught of God. Okay, so first of all, two things that it cannot mean. Number one, when Jesus says they shall all be taught of God, 
it cannot refer simply to the external teaching of sinners. Okay? What we would call the external call. As though what Jesus is saying here is all those who are taught by God in the Scriptures will come to Me. Now, we know that that can't be what He means because literally just about every Jew probably who was present here with Jesus already possessed that kind of instruction. In fact, they boasted in it. You remember Paul in Romans chapter 2 Verse 17, when he turns to specifically address the Jews in the, Roman, um, in the uh, Roman congregation, he turns to speak to the Jews and he says, you are indeed called a Jew and you rest on the law and you make your boast in God and you know His will and you approve the things which are excellent. How? How? Paul says, being instructed out of the law. That was the Jews' boast. And yet, Paul turns around and says to them, yet on account of you, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. In other words, there were many Jews who listened to God in an external sense through His Word, but didn't listen. There were many who were taught and yet weren't taught. In fact, I I think a good cross-reference to this is what we just recently saw at the end of chapter 5 of John's Gospel, verse 45, where Jesus is concluding His defense to these Jewish leaders and He says to them in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you before My Father, But there is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you have put your trust. Right? If you were to ask the Jew of Jesus' day, where is your trust? The first words out of their mouth would have been Torah, the law, Moses. And yet Jesus says to them in verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe His writings, how will you believe My words? In other words, just like Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, Israel kept on hearing but did not understand. They kept on seeing but they did not perceive. Brothers and sisters and unbeliever, listen. To possess the oracles of God, to possess the words of God is an extreme extraordinary blessing. It's what Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Because to possess the oracles of God is to possess the instruction of the Lord to us as His image bearers in an external sense, but it doesn't guarantee that anyone will truly know the Lord. Right? I mean, don't you wish that evangelism was just that easy? That all a sinner needs is to hear the Word of God, you know, as though we could just put the, you know, put our audio Bible on on a loudspeaker and everyone who drives by our house gets saved suddenly. That, That would make it a lot easier than it is. But scripturally, the Word of God, though it is living and active, and the power of the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it requires along with it the internal work of the Spirit. Now that's that's the first thing that this can't refer to is the merely, merely the external word, the external call. But secondly, when Jesus says they shall all be taught of God, it also can't refer to a partial persuasion. It cannot refer to a partial persuasion. Now, this is a bit more nuanced, okay? So just li- listen closely. This cannot refer to the Arminian concept of prevenient grace. Okay, and I know some of you have heard of that term. Some of you know what it is. Some of you have never heard of it. Some of you have heard of it and you don't know what it is. That's okay. That's why we're here to be taught about it. Historic Arminianism, at least in the strain of, for instance, the Wesleys and others, 
They do not deny that for a sinner to be saved, there needs to be some sort of internal work of grace first. Okay? And Christian, we need to be fair that we don't paint those that we disagree with with just a broad brush or with a straw man argument. Okay? We need to understand the nuances of what people really do and don't believe. For instance, Wesley himself wrote some of the greatest hymns. We know that. We sing his hymns and we love his hymns. Wesley would not have said that all a sinner needs to come to Christ is to hear the external call of the Gospel. Okay? Now, that is, however, I will say, what I believe, and I only mention this gentleman's name because he seemed to have risen to popularity recently. That is very close to what I think Leighton Flowers teaches. Is that all a sinner needs to be saved is to hear the external message of the Gospel apart from any internal work of grace and they can respond positively to that message. And that's a lot more dangerous, in my opinion, than historic Arminianism. Because that, that's very quickly on a slippery slope towards much worse heresies. Um, but Arminianism, in most of its forms, argued, no, there does need to be an internal work of grace by God in the sinner's heart and that will, has to happen before they come to Christ. And Arminians call this provenient grace. Now that word provenient grace, literally it just means grace that goes before and they argue, and this is where I would encourage you to listen closely so that if you're talking to someone, you know what they believe. They argue that in the death of Christ, He procured for all sinners a partial restoration of His heart and His will by which He is restored to a place where He can either respond negatively or positively to the Gospel based on His own free will. Now, obviously, I think that that's an idea that is imposed upon the Scriptures. I don't think that that's something that you just naturally get out of the Scriptures themselves. But nonetheless, at least they're trying to make the point that yes, we affirm there needs to be some sort of internal work of grace for a sinner to be saved. They just don't want to say that that grace is effectual. They want to say that Christ procured that grace for everyone and it's given to everyone so that everyone has the ability to receive Christ, but it doesn't guarantee that anyone will certainly come to Christ. Okay. Now, here's the reason why I say that Jesus can't be referring to that kind of a partial restoration, partial persuasion. There's one obvious major silver bullet problem with that idea here in John 6.45, isn't there? The second part of verse 45. Therefore, who? Everyone, everyone who has learned and heard from the Father comes to Me. Jesus is not teaching here that there are actually many who are drawn by the Father, who hear the Father, but many who don't come to Him. He is teaching a drawing that certainly leads to the sinner coming to Christ. And that brings us to the third thing. What does this mean? I've already tipped my hand. What does it mean when Jesus says that all, they will all be taught of God? This being taught by the Father can refer to nothing else than the internal work of the Holy Spirit by which we are effectually persuaded to come to Christ by means of the supernatural work of the new birth. This is what Jesus taught Nicodemus in chapter 3. You remember chapter 3. Nicodemus, it is the Spirit who must blow upon you as the wind blows where it wills, so the Spirit blows upon whom He wills. And he said to Nicodemus, it is the Spirit that enables anyone not only to enter the kingdom, but even to see the kingdom. And to change someone from being merely flesh into a spiritual person 
who sees and enters the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is referring to here by this drawing and this teaching. As our confession says in chapter 10, it says um, this is the effectual call by which God enlightens our minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away the heart of stone and gives to us a heart of flesh. He renews our wills and by His almighty power turns us to good and effectually draws us to Jesus Christ. Yet, it says, He does this all in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by His grace. What Jesus is teaching this crowd here is what Paul, the idea that Paul will pick up on and that Paul will describe at least most often with the term calling. If you're quick, you can turn uh, to Romans 8.30. There's dozens of texts we could go to in Paul in which he teaches the same concept of an effectual calling. Uh, Romans 8, verse 30, very familiar passage where Paul says, after telling us that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.30, Paul says, Moreover, So it gets even better. Moreover, whom He predestined, right? That's very parallel to what Jesus has been saying in John 6. Those whom the Father has given to Me. Paul says, those whom He predestined, these He also called. That is, those the Father predestined from eternity past, in time He brings them to faith in Jesus Christ. And even proving even further that this calling is a a sure calling, Paul goes on that those whom he calls, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Or turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And look at, we'll jump in at verse 22. 1 Corinthians 1, if you're familiar with the context, Paul is um, he's describing his preaching ministry. And he's, he's telling the Corinthians why he refuses to bow down to worldly methods of proclamation like Greek philosophy and worldly wisdom. And he's describing his preaching method and why he refuses to preach anything but the unadulterated message of the cross. And he describes for the Corinthians in general categories how that message of the cross is usually received. In verse 22, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So understand what Paul is saying here. He's saying, as a general rule, Paul is saying, when I preach Christ and Him crucified, this is how it gets responded to. To the Jew, they demand signs, and they think that it is a message of weakness and a stumbling block. And when the Gentiles hear the message of the cross, they think that it's just a foolish myth. But then notice verse 24. But... To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. So, within those broad categories of Jews and Greeks, you have called Jews and called Greeks. He says, But to those who are called, Christ, the power of God. That is, the same Jew who moments before thought that Christ crucified is a stumbling block and weakness, suddenly, because they are called of God, Christ becomes to them the power of God. And the same thing for the Gentile who thought it was foolishness, suddenly Christ becomes to him the wisdom of God. You see, what Paul is saying is that it is the calling of God, this drawing of the Father, that makes all the difference. And then look at how he applies it to them 
in particular in verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. That is, God didn't choose you and call you because you were wiser than others. He says, not many of you were powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world in order to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are for this purpose. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30, notice the emphasis. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us, Christian, if you want something to boast about in terms of why you are in Christ, then boast loudly in the Lord and nowhere else. Christian, why did you come to Christ and others didn't or haven't? It's because God chose you and called you And He didn't choose you because you were better or exceptional in any way. Paul makes that explicit. It's because He chose you according to His own good pleasure and in time He called you. He summoned you and compelled you not against your will, but by making you willing in such a way that He enlightened the eyes of your heart He freed your will from its love of sin so that you irresistibly came to Christ and were drawn to the glory of God as it's revealed in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, Christian, if you're going to boast, boast in that and that alone. This is what Jesus is referring to by being taught by the Father. It is an internal persuasion by the Spirit of God, enlightening the eyes of our hearts, enlightening our darkened minds, freeing our wills from the bondage of sin so that we are turned to that which is good and so that we come to Christ irresistibly and yet freely. Now, that brings us to our doctrine this morning. Having considered the meaning of what Jesus is saying, let's turn to how we're instructed doctrinally and then we'll turn and close with our application. I have two things under our doctrinal uh, heading this morning. The first one is brief. The second one is a bit longer, but, but not too long. Two simple things that were taught from our text this morning. Number one, and I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, we learn from this text that the drawing of the Father is not a drawing that destroys the will of the sinner but is a grace that makes us willing. Okay? This drawing of the Father is not a a grace that destroys the sinner's will, but it is a grace that makes the sinner willing. How often have I, and I'm sure you've heard it as well, but how often have I heard the character of Reformed doctrine that we believe in some kind of monstrous God who just drags sinners kicking and screaming into His kingdom even though they have no desire to come. Christian, I'm assuming you would say this as well. I have never met a Reformed theologian who believes anything close to that. Just as I said earlier, we need to deal fairly with our opponents to represent their arguments accurately, I would also hope that they would do the same to us. Notice Jesus says, okay, pay attention to His words, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. Now, answer this question. According to that text, who comes to Jesus? It's the sinner, 
right? Everyone, every sinner who has been, who has heard and been taught by the Father, all of them come to Jesus. It doesn't say that the Father comes to Jesus for them. It doesn't say that they they want nothing to do with Jesus, but the Father just drags them to Him anyway. It says everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. And Christian, we need to understand this. Our faith is a gift of God. Right? Right? Uh, Philippians chapter 1, it's been granted to you not only to suffer for His sake, but also to believe in Him. Our faith is a gift from God, but it is still our faith. Right? It's not like all of a sudden you become a Christian and you just become totally passive and just God takes over. You're still a person. still an image bearer. The Father is not the one who believes in the Son for the sinner or in the place of the sinner. The Father doesn't humble Himself and repent for the sinner. The Father works effectually by the Spirit in us in regeneration in order to change our nature so that we come to Christ most freely and willingly and eagerly. And Christian, it's very important that we understand the nuances of that so that we don't become hyper-Calvinists among some other dangers. Um, And and I say that pastorally because I know what it's like. I remember when I was new to Reformed theology and I've had conversations with plenty of people who are themselves new to Reformed theology. And I know that one of the temptations when you're new and you don't quite understand how it all jives Some people new to Reformed theology are very hesitant to press sinners to believe and to trust Christ and to come to Christ because they think that sounds too Arminian, right? (laughs) I mean, God forbid that I should tell someone believe in Jesus because that's what the Arminians believe. Well, if that's all Arminianism is, then I guess I'm an Arminian and you should be too, okay? The Arminians don't have the corner on the market of the free offer of the gospel, and pressing sinners on their duty. But they're thinking in their mind, well, God has to do the saving, which we agree with, but they make the bad connection, so therefore it's pointless for me to tell the sinner what he cannot, to do what he cannot do. And that's a misunderstanding. Ineffectual calling, we do not believe that God is bypassing the human will, If that's what we believe, then maybe it would be pointless to tell anyone to exercise their will and believe in Christ. But we don't believe God's bypassing their will. We believe that God changes and renews the human will, thus making our appeals to the sinner both sincere and genuine when we press upon them their duty to believe in Christ. So that's that's the first thing. The first doctrinal takeaway from this passage is that we see... Reformed doctrine or effectual calling in particular here is not us saying that God destroys the human will, but rather that He works in the human will and renews the human will so that they willingly come to Christ. That brings us to the second point of doctrinal instruction this morning, which I want to spend just a bit more time on. Secondly, by way of doctrinal, um, doctrinal instruction, Secondly, this passage teaches us this. It teaches us the insufficiency of external privileges and conversely, it teaches us the necessity of an internal work of grace in order to be a Christian. Okay, so two parts to that. A a negative and a positive. It teaches us the insufficiency of of external privileges to make us a Christian. And conversely, it teaches us the necessity of an internal work of grace to be a Christian. Now, I want you to notice my language on purpose and carefully. Notice I said the insufficiency of external privileges. I did not say the worthlessness of external privileges. Okay? These Jews had almost literally every 
privilege in the world in terms of reasons for why they should have embraced Christ. And Paul enumerates those. Romans chapter 3 at the very beginning. Romans chapter 9 in more length. He, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He enumerates the privileges that the Jews had. That to them belong the Scriptures. And to them belong the covenants and the promises and the worship. And on and on and on. And yet, ultimately, even though the Jews had all those external privileges, as we see from John chapter 6, the vast majority of them turned their backs and walked away from Christ. That's very instructive to us. Christian, someone can have the perfect environment, spiritually speaking, And it is not a guarantee that that will make them a Christian. I think of our children, for instance. Not that we're perfect parents or we're a perfect church or anything like that. But you think about our... And children, you guys listen listen up to me. But parents also. You think about our children compared to many, many of their neighbors. And... They've got the Scriptures. They've got parents who teach them the Scriptures. They've got hymns that they're memorizing and singing. They've got Bibles that they, they memorize. All of that is, all of those are incredible blessings. Kids, I'm, children, I mean this. Having that, what you have from your parents, that is better than if you were to be raised by a millionaire. And have everything that you could ever want by way of anything you want your parents to buy you. What you have is better than that. Because parents, they are just being poured into and the Word of God is being sowed and watered and watered again. For years they have that. Being nurtured. But that is not what ultimately will make our children Christians. That's not what makes anyone a Christian, no matter what your age. Those things are a means that God often uses, but what makes a person a Christian is the internal work of grace by the Holy Spirit in their hearts causing them to actually know Christ. What makes them a Christian is the Spirit taking what was merely external to them And what was merely information stored up in the brain and the Spirit taking that and giving them an internal and experiential submission to that truth. Which is why, parents, we need to do at least two things with our kids. Number one, we need to pray for our kids and with our kids. I remember this week a story from Spurgeon Spurgeon remembered later on in life, after he had been a pastor and a preacher, he remembered later on in life a moment from when he was a young child and his believing mom, he was, Spurgeon wasn't converted until he was in his teens, his converted mom praying for her children right in front of them, and his mom prayed this. She prayed, Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins... It will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they do not lay hold of Christ. And Spurgeon remembered, looking back when he was young, that it pierced him when he heard his mom and he thought that if he doesn't follow Christ like his mom does, that even his very own earthly mother will stand as a witness against him on the judgment day for going on in his sins. Christian parents, we need to pray for our kids and with our kids. But secondly, the second thing we need to do, this is obviously not exhaustive, but for this morning's purposes, the second thing we need to do is we need to teach our children the very truth that I'm talking about from this passage. That as much as it delights the heart of a father and the heart of a mother to hear our kids singing. We heard some of that this morning. 
And as much as it delights our, our hearts to hear our kids reciting the scriptures and to hear them looking forward to, to church and whatever else delights our hearts, we need to tell them, my son or my daughter, doing those things are not the thing which will ultimately make you a Christian. And we need to tell them, son or daughter, listen to me. Listen to your father's words. That nothing would delight my heart more than for you to go on in the way that I have trained you. And you may even do that. Even after you leave home, you may continue to go to church and be involved in Bible studies and what, whatever. But son or daughter, listen to me. You must do all those things from a heart that has gen- genuinely closed with Christ. Because without Christ in the heart, all the Scripture memorized in the world is worthless. And without Christ in the heart, hymns sung from our lips is but a stage play. We need to tell our kids that. Christianity is not just a bunch of things you do. We do this. We go to church. We read the Bible. There are, there are many people who don't know Christ who do all those same things. Adults. This applies to you too. Oftentimes, I have heard, I just heard a, a, another example of this recently, where unbelievers will often find themselves down and out, and, and they're, they're burdened under the burdens of life, and they look at Christians, and, and they think, I want what they have. Right? Their family looks all put together. Their lives seem ordered. And so what do they reason to themselves with? They reason to themselves like this. I'm going to mimic what they do. I'm going to go to church. I'll join a Bible study. Which is good in one sense, right? I mean, that's good in the sense that I, I wish every home in Stockton were vacant on Sunday mornings because everyone is at gospel-preaching churches in order to hear the gospel. But here's the thing. Going to church is not enough if you're simply going to church for the sake of going to church. Christianity, again, is not just a set of new things you start doing. It's great to attend upon the privileges, but they're only privileges because they lead you and expose you to Christ who can give you life. Right? I can't give you life. No matter what I say up here, I do not have it within me to give you the life that you need. This building certainly can't give you life. Christ gives life. God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, drawing you to Christ, can give you life. That's what you need. If you're here and you're you're that unbeliever, you don't just need a new set of things to do. You need a new heart that is renewed by the grace of Christ. And only God can give that to you. Only the Father can draw you savingly to the Son. And you might hear that and you think to yourself, well, then what is there for me to do? You just told me that the Father must draw me to the Son if I am to come to the Son. What can I do? Listen to me. You can apply to Christ right now. Because He said, whosoever comes to Him, He will in no wise cast out. Listen to me. The doctrine which Jesus is teaching us here of the indispensable need of the Spirit of God to give us faith, this doctrine is not given to us to make us passive or hopeless. But as one Puritan said, this shows us that we are cripples without even the hands to receive Christ so that we look to Christ even for the hands that we need. I think that's an 
excellent way of explaining the application of this doctrine. Unbeliever, do you feel your helplessness to save yourself? Go to Christ with your helplessness. I understand as a pastor that conversion and salvation can often be a mysterious thing. And in fact, oftentimes it's very hard for the sinner when he's in the midst of conviction and all these things. He's not even himself sure. Have I truly trusted Christ? Or am I just under the conviction of sin and I haven't really come to Christ? What do you do? Well, don't just sit there and examine your confused heart. Look outside yourself to Christ. He'll receive you in your confusion. He'll receive you in your helplessness. As Richard Sibbs said, cast yourself on the mercy of Christ and if you perish, perish there. Because if you do not, you will certainly perish. If mercy is to be found anywhere, it is to be found in Christ. And so, unbeliever, come to Christ. No matter what your questions, no matter what your confusion, apply to Christ, and He will receive you. That brings us to our application as we close. Application. (coughs) I want to address four Four groups of people this morning, just briefly on each as we come to a close. Four groups of people. Number one, I want to address every single Christian in this room. Every single Christian who you, this moment, even though your faith may be weak, you know that it is upon Christ and not myself that I stake my whole eternity. And I want to tell you this, Christian. Give praise to God. Give praise to God that He has met literally every spiritual need you have to be in Christ Jesus. And praise God that He did not merely condescend to us with His Gospel as cripples with no hands. And He didn't merely come to us and say, here, it's yours for the taking. Leaving us to complain, but we have no hands to take but rather God condescended such that He gave us even the hands of faith by which we laid hold of the banquet that is Christ. It's because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of His spectacular grace that you are a Christian. And believer, because of that, you are the richest people in all the earth. Though you be poor in an earthly and a worldly sense, the riches of Christ in the heart is more valuable than all the silver and gold there is in this world. Because silver and gold will perish. But Christ's Word abides forever. And His promise to raise us up on that great and glorious day will stand forever. Rust and moth cannot destroy it. So Christian, let us, notwithstanding all of the tragedies that we will walk through, all the persecutions, all the need for endurance, all the hardships, let us not, though, dishonor our loving God by grumbling and complaining as though all of our hope is bound up in this world. He has called us and He will not go back on that. And so rejoice and give praise to God. Second group I want to address this morning is our children, our kids. Kids, listen to me. Make use of all the good things that God has given to you. Okay? You might not realize it, but all the Bible that you have, the parents that you have who read you the Bible and who teach you the Bible, all the songs that you get to sing and and learn, those are things that many other children do not have in their lives. God in His kindness to you children chose to give you the parents He gave you to. 
He chose to give you the home that you're being uh, raised in so that you can be blessed by knowing Jesus Christ when you are little. Children, don't waste what God has given you. Sometimes, this is often true, we don't realize how valuable something is until we don't have it anymore. What you have in your parents teaching you the Word of God is more valuable than all the riches in the world. And so children, don't grumble when it's Bible time. But pray to God that He would give you a heart to delight in Bible time. Don't grumble when it's time to pray. But pray that God would give you a heart that is eager to pray. And on and on and on. All the good things God has given you, if you don't have the desire for it that you should, ask God to give you that desire. And kids, trust Christ at a young age. Ask God to give you a heart that loves Jesus and loves His Word. Who who else should we go to? Who can change the heart? Only God can change our hearts. Adults have to pray that way. That, Lord, my heart should be one way and it's not, so please change it. The same thing for you kids. Pray that God would give you what you need. A love for Jesus and a trust in Jesus. Thirdly, third group of person I want to speak to this morning is the fainting Christian. The fainting and discouraged Christian. I may not know who you are, but God knows who all the frames of His people. And I want to say this to the fainting, the discouraged, the tired, the fatigued Christian. Take heart that you cannot be lost. Romans 11, verse 29, God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. Nothing in heaven or on earth Neither life nor death, nor the sword, nor famine, nor nakedness, even if you are killed for being a Christian, nothing, invisible or visible, can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And nothing can keep you from the glories and the splendors of that great last day when Christ, you hear His voice and you come out of the grave glorified to enjoy Him forever in the glorified state. Christian, I know that doubt can make you feel that way. Like there are some things that seem like they're going to keep that from happening. But remember, Christ is stronger than our doubt. Right? Our doubt is not the great governor and limiter of Christ's power. Our faith may become weak and it may wane, but we are not saved by the strength of our faith We're saved by the perfection of the object of our faith, who is Christ, who's the same yesterday and today and forevermore, and He keeps His Word. And so, fainting Christian, all whom the Father draws will come to Christ, and all who come to Christ will be raised up. Do that kind of logic with your doubting soul. Look to the promise of God. When you are weary and you feel your faith will fail, look outside of yourself to the promise of an almighty God who will hold you fast. Lastly, last person I want to speak to this morning is I want to speak to the proud Christian. The proud Christian. And in a sense, I'm speaking to every single one of us because all of us are far more too proud than we ought to be. How this doctrine of the gracious calling, sovereign calling of the Father to the Son, how this should humble the Christian in the dust. It is so easy, and you know this, Christian, it is so easy for us, after we get some time and maturity in the Christian faith, that we begin feeling like, I'm starting to get this down. You know, I've got some things together, it seems. And we can very easily slip into sounding 
exactly like the Pharisee in Luke 18 in Jesus' parable. That, Lord, I thank You that I am not like other sinners. Listen to me, Christian. That may be true. That by the grace of God, you are not what you once were and you aren't anymore in some senses like other sinners. But don't forget this. You were. And it is only the grace of God that has caused you to differ. And so don't... We dare not boast of anything good within us as though it is not a gift that we have received. Right? You remember the Pharisee, not only did he speak highly of himself, but he despised others. And that's so easily what we can begin to become like. And we, we think, I mean, why can't they just be a Christian like me and clean up their lives like I did? Christian, you didn't. It's the grace of God. And so, God forbid that we should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. That is the hymn that the Christian sings all the days of his life, all the way to glory. Do not boast in yourself, but as Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's, let's pray and ask for God to write this upon our hearts. Let's pray. Father, forbid it that we should boast save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through His cross and His resurrection that we have been separated from the world. That we've been... That we've had our direction now reoriented facing towards heaven. And the things of God and the things of the Spirit forbid that we should boast. Even if the whole realm of nature were ours, it would be a gift far too small. The only thing that we ought and can give to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our lives and our all. Father, help us to do that. Help us to serve You in light of the truths of this passage. Lord, deliver us from a legal attitude that seeks to work for Your grace, uh, that seeks to depend on our obedience as though that is what purchases for us Your favor. Help us to work from the fact that You have worked in us. That we would work out the salvation that You have worked in us. Father, cause Christ to draw near to our hearts. We pray for our children. Father, we praise You that many of our children already profess faith and we have no question in our minds that You are able to save at very young ages. We just pray, Father, that that would be the case for all of our children. May they make good use of the privileges You've given them May these privileges lead them to the glories of Christ in Your Word and may Your Spirit blow upon their hearts and cause them to see the beauty, the preciousness of Christ. Father, be gracious to us. Be merciful to the unbeliever. Teach them that they do not just need a new set of things to do, but that they need Christ. They need the new birth. And we pray, Lord, that as they feel their helplessness to save themselves, that that would cause them to bring their helplessness to Christ. That they would bring their confusion to Christ. Whatever they do, Father, cause them to bring it to Christ. Father, glorify Yourself. Glorify Your Son. Glorify Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for the Trinitarian Gospel, the riches of Your Word, 
Cause us today as we share a meal together to speak of spiritual things with one another. We pray that you would guide and direct our conversation, that we would redeem the time, knowing that the days are evil, that we would speak good and healthy and good words to one another. Father, bless this meal, we pray. We thank you for the food that you've provided. We pray that you'd give us strength this afternoon to come again to hear from your word a second time. That you'd bless us the remainder of this Lord's Day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. You are dismissed.